Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Personalization Outbreak Podcast, a place for those who are committed to change the definition of leadership. Now, today we'll be talking about something that's really important to all of us, rebuilding our communities. You know, a lot of times we focus on the big picture without looking at the individual pieces that make up that picture. By understanding the dynamics of individuals, we can start to see where things went wrong and how we can fix them. Now, our guest today is Shalini Bajala. She's the executive director of the San Diego Regional Policy and Innovation Center. Shalini has over 15 years of experience working across public, private, and nonprofit sectors on developing, designing, and financing resilient infrastructure for vulnerable communities around the world. Now, together, we'll talk about the dynamics of vulnerable communities, why this is the best time to start rebuilding communities and investing in infrastructure since Roosevelt, and how the Great Resignation has prompted a long overdue reimagining of what a sense of community looks like. So before we get started, please click the like button below, share it with your colleagues, and subscribe to our YouTube channel and social media at Glenn Yopis. Let's get started. The 2022 season of Personalization Outbreak Podcast is brought to you by City of Hope, a world leader in the research and treatment of cancer, diabetes, and other life-threatening diseases. City of Hope has been ranked among the nation's best hospitals in cancer by U.S. News and World Report for over a decade. Learn more about City of Hope at cityofhope.org. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Welcome to the show, Shalini. It's great to have you. I, I can't wait for people to listen to that smooth voice of yours that has tremendous impact. Oh, goodness. Thanks for having me, Glenn. I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> I knew I'd throw you off with that. But look, in the age of personalization, it's about making sure we get to know and see each other as individuals. And that's part of what I've experienced with, with you, Shalini, as long as I've known you. I'm excited that others will be able to do the same. So tell us a little bit about the Policy and Innovation Center. Well, I'd love to. So we are a relatively new nonprofit in the San Diego region that was established by the San Diego Foundation, our biggest community foundation in, in the region, and the county of San Diego. And this was a really interesting collaboration to meet the moment we're in, which is how do we not let the crisis of this pandemic go to waste? And how do we also take a crisis and turn it into ambition to make really outstanding use of all of the federal funding that's coming to regions to really make systems change? So why do crises go to waste? Why is it that we have this tendency to get back uh, to where we were before the crisis hit us? Why is that? I think it's a huge failure of imagination, right? <laughs> Where in a crisis, it's tempted to anchor to the, it's tempting to anchor to the familiar. You go back to what you had without really appreciating that in many cases the status quo was terrible for a lot of people, right? So, 
our team really does see a crisis as an opportunity to think about where should we be going next, not just how do we build back to what we had. And that to me is one of the most exciting things about the interface between policy and innovation. So what is next? What's, what's your vision? You know, I think what's next is a, we are looking at a time where we have more money dedicated to rebuilding communities and investing in infrastructure than we've seen since Roosevelt was president. So I just want everybody to sit with that because that is a life, a once in a generation opportunity to make change in a way that really sticks. It's not just about you know fixing potholes, it's changing how people get to work or school and how safe they are along the way. It's thinking about where our water sources come from, how do we make better use of our resources, but it's also making structural investments to keep folks safe in the face of climate change. What's, what is the foundation that's missing in most communities? What do you think? That's a good question. I think it's changed a lot, right? I think the fabric of communities has been frayed for a lot of reasons. And that's um, in some ways we've underinvested in things that used to hold communities together. So we haven't maintained our infrastructure. When I say the most money since Roosevelt, some of those things have been around since Roosevelt and we haven't done much with it since. Um, I, I think we've also seen our civic institutions get thinner and more under-resourced. And so a lot of what I do is work with and across government, the private sector and the nonprofit sector to align folks and help fill gaps. And local governments in particular have been really resource constrained for the past decade. If you think about coming out of the Great Recession, mm. oftentimes you had local institutions that were scraping and looking in their wallets to see what they could afford. And now we have a moment of saying, think as big as you can. And that takes a transition. Um, it takes a mindset shift from you know, cost cutting um, and making things smaller to thinking bigger to meet the moment that we're in. So you shared with me, uh, Shalani, that solving for money, for moving money and shovels for vulnerable communities is what drives you. What does this mean? Yeah. It, it means a couple things to me, right? And money and shovels to me are shorthand for actually getting to real life built solutions for and with communities that need them. And that's different than writing white papers or describing a problem. Yeah. It's making sure that resources and outcomes are visible. Even when we're talking about invisible infrastructure like water mains under the street. So what makes companies or communities vulnerable, Shalani? Oh my goodness, that's an enormous question, right? There's... Well, I, I only ask <laughs> yeah. because I, I the only ask, I ask it because here you are trying to help rebuild them. Yeah. Uh, but I think oftentimes most people don't know what vulnerable communities really mean. Well, let me give some examples, right? Because there are many, many different ways that a community or an individual could be vulnerable. It could be lack of resources. It could be lack of access. Um, it could be both of those at times where it's important. So when I use the term rebuild communities, it's easy to think of a community that was, you know, um, burned down by a wildfire. Right. 
rebuilding is not just for the most extreme cases. It's also when, if you think about a house, you actually have to make regular investments in ensuring that the roof over your head stays over your head and stays sturdy, right? So I think the definition of vulnerability and the definition of rebuilding are both pretty broad. There is no such thing as a natural disaster, right? All disasters are in some ways structural and influenced by the conditions that we've put people in. And the folks who are most vulnerable are often those who have been driven to marginal lands. So think about tribal communities um, and tribal nations, coastal communities, where you often have the oldest and the um, poorest communities in areas that are swamps or bayous or places that were undesirable, right, to live. And other ways of becoming vulnerable are where a community has changed drastically, right? An industry has left or shifted. And so you have this fraying set of systems that were built for a thriving population, and now you have a fraction of that there. And so there are a lot of different ways that vulnerability shows up. One of the examples I give to try to make infrastructure really tangible for folks who, um, unlike me, don't spend their days thinking about how you know sewer systems might function. I want you to picture a, a transit system, right? a subway, a light rail line, when it gets hot outside, picture sitting outside, waiting for that train or that bus to come get you. The hotter it gets, the worse that is. So who is that sitting out there, right? That's generally someone who doesn't have a car or doesn't have access to it. Someone who doesn't have another way to get to their job. That's someone who's transit dependent for their work. So when I think about vulnerability, I think about the vulnerability of the system. So what happens in high heat to a train, you can have tracks that melt or bend and buckle. And that means that what train operators, systems like public transit systems are doing is they're running fewer trains and they're running them more slowly every time it gets hot for three days in a row, four days in a row. <laughs> what does that mean? Who are they leaving out in the heat every time that train is delayed, it's the people who are most vulnerable. Mm. How do you fix that? That's where we come in. That's the interface between policy and innovation. Where are the technical fixes to the train system so that there aren't those delays, even though it is hotter outside, that the system itself is more resilient, but that you also don't take your eye off the ball of remembering who's left out in the heat if you don't get it right. That's a great story. Kind of reminds me of kind of the world that we live in, right? Who, who's, yeah. where, where do we start? Do we start fixing the systems or do we mm -hmm. do more for the individual or do we do a little bit of both? Both. I mean, I, that's why I love being part of these conversations that you've started here, Glenn, because I think it is absolutely about system change, but also individual attention. Mm. I don't think you change the system without knowing who the individuals are. If you tried to strengthen a transit system without paying attention to who's out in the heat, you would solve for the wrong problem. And if you only looked at who's out in the heat, you might not look at the transit system at all. You would try to think about how to get them out of the heat. It's the interface that lets you innovate. Powerful. So much we can learn from. So I know one thing that we'd all like to learn from you is, why isn't the great resignation one of your favorite words? It seems to be a word that, that isn't uh, very popular with you. And why are people yeah. stepping out of institutions and 
in our wire and what are we doing to help people step towards them yeah so this this term that keeps popping up in the media right in the last you know i think it's been a few months now the great resignation about people and the workforce really shifting it sits wrong with me for a couple of reasons because i think folks have been focused primarily on how this affects corporate america but the same issue is playing out in local government in a lot of other different sectors and I don't like the term because it's backward looking. It's focused on what people are leaving, not what they're pointed toward. And so I was reaching for an alternative. And I think, I think what I've leaned into is this is more like the great flex. People are stretching. They're stretching for impact and purpose and meaning in their work and um, better matched work conditions and environments. And I think that is a powerful shift from you know the system what are the jobs to the individuals who are the workers and what are they reaching for what are they flexing to work so what are the barriers that get in the way of this much needed flexibility a number of things right so i i come at this thinking from the perspective of how to make government work well for the people that it's trying to serve and i think many of the barriers that are getting in the way of this kind of flexibility are also what get in the way of innovation. And that is that we build systems and institutions that once they're built, it's much easier to lean into the familiar than it is to try the new thing. So um, the, the term in government for how you buy anything, right, from a, from a water main to toilet paper is procurement. So procurement systems are set up so for very good reasons, they're kind of difficult to march through. They can feel like molasses, but they're designed to make good use of taxpayer dollars and ensure integrity, ensure that things aren't just kind of biased toward whoever is closest by, <laughs> you know, but that same kind of system gets rigid very fast. You set up a bunch of rules that are defensive. And you don't create a lot of space for creativity around the edges, for that flex, for that reach. So what happens when you wanna replace a coastal protection with a wetland? Or when you wanna replace a um, stormwater main with a street tree that absorbs water? That's, that's the difference between buying a funnel and buying a sponge. And it's two totally different solutions. If you have set up your system to only buy one, you're gonna miss the other. And so I how do we change same. the mindset from those procurement folks that have done yeah. it only one way? This is something I spend a lot of time on because it's easy it. to, well, you know, it's, it's such a good question because it's so easy to assume that the system needs to be changed. Like there's something broken in the rules. Oftentimes it's fear of the consequences that drives the, the familiar, right? Like That's we right. know we didn't get in trouble for this, so we'll do that. Or we'll know, we know that that worked before, so we'll do that, even though it didn't work perfectly and it might not work as well as something else. Hmm. So I think there are a couple levels of fixing these barriers, right? One is actually to look for what's baked in that is blocking um, you from doing the thing that is forward-looking or serving the individual and the system. And then there are the sets of things that are culture, right? How do you help overcome fear? How do you how do you create cohorts of folks so that it's not one individual failing, but it's a system test? Yeah. 
And that's where we try to create space for experimentation. And whereas a nonprofit that works with government, works with the private sector, we can create those safe spaces to try new things so that it's not a it's it, it's not an individual failure when something doesn't work out exactly as you thought, but it produces a really interesting outcome. So what's working? What what are you seeing that's working as you're trying to create this great flex? I think what's working is that um, our our team is tackling traditional problems or you know long-standing problems by coming at them from new directions. Mm-hmm. So a couple of good examples that are on my desk right now. I've been thinking a lot about the people who haven't been able to afford their water and electricity bills because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. It's more folks than I think many listeners to the, this podcast would be comfortable with hearing about, right? And there were enormous federal efforts to make sure that people didn't fall through the cracks for rent relief, for having their water shut off, for getting evicted in the middle of pandemic. And these were really important investments in making sure that people didn't just fall through um, the increasing number of cracks that were revealed by COVID-19. What I find really interesting is that many of those folks who were suffering visibly and were the target of these relief programs were suffering before the pandemic and they will suffer after this relief stops. How do we make good use of that information? Mm -hmm. Well, it's the first time we've actually tried to reach folks in a systematic way who have been struggling with this. The first time? Nationally, right? Every, if you think about how fragment, how huge the US is, right? These are local problems. So it's easy to think that they're only local problems until you have some massive structural and seismic thing like a pandemic that reveals that everybody was struggling with it. So now we have data. Now we have data on who was struggling before, who's struggling after, and their gaps, their issues, but it's a window onto a problem that could let us target infrastructure investment to reach the folks who couldn't repair a whole apartment building by themselves to make it more energy efficient or water efficient. All that they are faced with is their bills just going up. We have a way now to say, how do we create more affordable water and electricity and help deal with our climate change goals so that you make a building more sustainable, more resilient, and you make utilities more affordable for the folks who need it most. Shalani, why does it take a pandemic for us to start getting to know our people in our community? This doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right. Um, I think it goes back to your earlier question, right, about how our ideas about community have shifted. This was a one of the great things about the United States is it's a highly geographically mobile society, right? We move for jobs. We move for opportunity. It also means that we're not grounded for generations in the same places. And many people don't know their neighbors. And we've had two years where we have been around only our neighbors. And that's a grand reset, right? It's a a great flex of a different sort. And I think it is one of the reasons I'm very excited after having spent time in federal government to be close to the ground, to really be able to think about not just big systems, but the implication of those systems for individuals. Yeah, it's interesting. I, 
you know, I've always learned that you've got to get your hands dirty to know what's really going on. And yeah. I, I just feel that, you know, during this time of, of, uh, you know, of uncertainty and, and really tackling what is the unknown in many respects, mm-hmm. um, we just don't take the time to know what the truth is. And it seems to me that what you're trying to do is help further not only reveal the truth about how our people feel and live within their communities, but what they really need. You know, well, I, and people's ahead, different truth. No, no, no. I think it's such it's so interesting that you you landed on the word truth there, Glenn, because I think we have different truths, right? And yeah. people, this has not been the same pandemic for everyone. Um, and so I think being able to lift that up and look across and say, you know, how do you connect all these different experiences and stories and design solutions so that everyone is well served? How ready um, are we for such a, you know, radical change? I mean, communities seem, you know, in the past, it's interesting, you know, you made me think about my childhood. Uh, We'd have the community store. We wouldn't have a lot of chain stores. It was the feel Mm -hmm. of what the community's identity was. And then now a lot of communities seem to look the same again. Are we heading back to where we came from our origin roots or where are communities headed? Um, There are many smarter people than me who have been thinking about this on the kind of shape of urban and rural communities. What do those look like? How do they how do they function? How do we make sure that they have integrity um, and that they uh, they work well for their residents? I'm coming at that from the narrow slice of what infrastructure enables, right? Which is how do you get the fabric right so everybody hangs together and has these basic services? And I think we are long overdue for a reimagining of that. And one of the things I'm really encouraged by is young people who just are hammering away at, well, why do we do it this way? Well, and they won't let the question go, which is just brilliant. Like, why do we do it this? Why do we build funnels and not sponges for our cities? Well, this takes us to a topic that you're very passionate about, which is higher education and how it's preparing the new workforce. Uh, why do you seem to think that we need more skilled generalists? I think... Um, there's a lot in that question. So I am very passionate about higher education. I am an architect and an engineer by training, and I have um, sought education opportunities that have allowed me to widen my lens with each step. And I think I was very fortunate to have people along the way that helped me do that um, and go from architecture to engineering to engineering to public policy and uh, to work with economists and to work with the folks who are you know, building water mains, right? And I think there is a great value to English to English translation when it comes to moving across different fields, because there's no field that's going to solve all of these problems, Hmm. right? If we had a solution that was in anthropology that we could deploy, that we could use so everybody would be better off, fantastic. That's not what's available. And it's not available from technology. It's not available from engineering. There's not a technological solution to a social problem, right? And I think we often, we have our hammers and we start looking for nails and that doesn't necessarily serve individuals, right? It creates some of these broken systems that we've been talking about. So I'm really um, 
it's something I hire for and look for in a very conscious way are these very deeply skilled generalists, folks who can cut through jargon, who can look across from journalism to engineering and tell a story about how you turn a city from a funnel into a sponge and do so in a way that makes it less hot where kids have high asthma rates and reduces air pollution. None of what I said was an engineering spec, but it could all be turned into one. Nice. And that's a skilled generalist, right? Someone who is confident and trained enough to be unintimidated by the jargon of another discipline so that you can have the engineer who looks at someone in finance and says, tell me where the money's coming from and where it's going and get a clean answer back from someone who's able to bring it to plain speak. But yeah, a jargon-free zone <laughs> and skilled I generalists are a workplace that I aim for. So what, what do you... What... What do you start, what are you seeing in terms of what this next generation of, of workers can bring to helping us understand the type of infrastructure that we need in our community? Are they starting? I'm really excited, yeah. Well, so I think that I'm, I'm excited about the great flex, right? I'm, I'm uninspired by the great resignation, but I yes. think the great flex is so a, This is all about the great flex. It is. They're, they're, and they're, I, they are probably, they're co-founding the great flex with you. Because that's what they that's what they long for. That's my hope, right? I think all these students who are graduating with these self-constructed, multidisciplinary interests and degrees, right, are bucking against the credentialing process that gives you the expertise, but they're reaching for that skilled generalist role. They're reaching for how they can be relevant, recognizing that what they're going to be doing in the next five years might be completely different than what they're doing in 10. And that's been the course of my career, right? I, yeah. um, I started out doing work in architecture and international development and have moved sideways through multiple career transitions. But I think that following interesting problems and acquiring skills along the way to hone the solutions is something that I'm seeing more and more out of the folks in higher education who are making the best use of the learning opportunities and who are less focused on the credentialing process itself. Mm. So are institutions ready to, for the great flex? I mean, Oh, absolutely not. No. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no. What, what do we need to do to get them there? Because as you've said to me, uh, you know, before the call, we're really good at uh, hiring people that know how to describe the problems, but yet we don't hire people to know how to solve them. It seems like the great flex is in order in higher education if we're going to get there. Yeah, and I think there are a lot of good people who have been thinking about this hard, right, and making systems change and thinking about how do you bring in a topic like innovation, which is not a degree, but it's a, it's a focus, it's a skill, it's, um, it's an important part of an education. I, I think we are at a really, um, a really interesting inflection point, right, for what it is that we expect from graduates of high school, of college, of graduate programs in the workforce, and then also what they expect of the workforce. And those themes are not lined up right now, which is where you can slide all sorts of interesting opportunities. Um, but I'm not sure that our institutions themselves are prepared for this. And I, I don't think they're prepared for it in a business model sense. 
of the things that have worked well in the past, like we talked about procurement, yeah, aren't the things that are going to work well in the future, but the transition path isn't clear. And that's where I think it's the conversations that you've started, right, about personalization are right in that gap between what folks are um, stepping into and what they want to step out as. And that's changing. And it's changing in ways that aren't, it's not from A to B. It's changing in a, in a very broad spectrum of ways. So as we wrap it up here, uh, Shalani, what, how do um, local communities, this relationship between the private and public sector, begin to appreciate uh, the importance of the great flex and in infrastructure? I think um, it's something that local governments really need to open the space to make visible to communities that there is a chance for more, for better. And that's something that my team and I are doing where we are talking very actively about how there is an opportunity for systems change. What do you want in your community? What do you wish you had? What haven't you had, but you used to, that you loved? Um, what do you need? Where do you feel unsafe? And I think those are conversations that rather than talking about infrastructure, it's recognizing that infrastructure is a means to an end, right? Mm. The, the end is a high quality life and work life and um, set of relationships that form a community. And whether that looks like a community through a high quality broadband network or one that is at the corner store, that's for individuals to decide, but the systems need to serve that. And that's, I think, a real opportunity to change the conversation and up the level of ambition. So what's the opportunity? I'll leave you with this question. What, what's the, yeah. the opportunities for leaders of community or in community? I think the opportunity is to think bigger. And too often, big ideas have gotten shot down because of lack of funding or resources. And that's no longer an excuse. There is opportunity out there. There's money out there looking for projects that are innovative, that serve communities. And so I would really encourage um, big thinking and zooming out, but also real intention about what do you want to be? in 10 years and 20 years and 50 years, not just how do you fix what you have. Powerful. Shalani, thank you so much for your time. Such a dynamic uh, role that you play. In fact, um, are there others like you throughout, <laughs> throughout <laughs> the United States? It seems like a, a very specific role. I mean, is this something that you've almost, you know, garnered and, and founded yourself or uh, give well, people a sense of the scope of this kind of role that you have? Well, I'm I'm very fortunate to have um, stepped into something that was created by a group of visionary leaders here in in San Diego, um, between the community foundation space, um, the county, local government, and local leaders. And I think um, I'm excited to be able to use everything I've ever done in every former job in this position. But I certainly can't take credit for being a, a solo leader in this space. We've got a phenomenal team uh, with a pretty wide range of experiences and we hardly overlap. So we really have to lean into that skilled generalist um, way of engaging with each other. 
And I think um, in terms of are, are, are there others out there? I certainly hope so. We need to see more of this. And, you know, our team at the Policy and Innovation Center here in San Diego might be blazing the trail. But we have a fantastic partnership with the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., and we are seeking to both learn and share so that other regions can um, can come along with us on this. You know, it uh, seems to me as if you've seen the opportunity, you're now sowing it, you will then grow it, and then you will re- and then you will share it to continue to re-sow more. That's great. That's great leadership. Thank you so much for your time today, Shalani. As we uh, always end the show, when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't. You'll do what others won't and keep pushing when prudence says quit. Thanks again, Shalani. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution. Learn more about City of Hope at cityofhope.org.